ask you to bless this time as we come together to look at your word. We ask your guiding and leading as we seek to understand and follow your will. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to be in John chapter 8. In, in John chapter 7, Jesus had gone to the Feast of Tabernacles secretly, but in the middle, into the temple and started preaching and basically saying, I am the Christ and that I'm God, uh, really irritating the, the, the people, the priests and the Pharisees wanted to have him arrested. They sent the temple guard after him. They came back without arresting him. Then they decided they wanted to kill him. Nicodemus stood up and said, you know, it's not our law to, to kill somebody who hasn't been hurt, heard completely. They accused him of being a follower of Jesus, of Jesus, telling him nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. And then everybody went home. That's where we, that's where we ended up, ended up at the end of chapter 7. Verse 1 of chapter 8 actually is part of chapter 7, if they hadn't put the break where it was at. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Everybody else went home. He went to the Mount of Olives. All right. Uh, Mount of Olives is about one mile away from the old Jerusalem to Mount of Olives. Uh, it's currently about 14 miles outside of Jerusalem because of how far the city is expanded out. But in the old Jerusalem, it was right there, right outside the gate at the top of the the top of the hill. So Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2, after Jesus had gone to Mount Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, whom they had, had set, and when they had set her in, in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, what, what say you? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he had not heard them. And so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto him, He that is without sin among you, let him, cast, let him first cast a stone at her. And then he stooped again and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, being convicted of their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said, Woman, where are those that your accusers? Has no man condemned you? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. All right, this... This little section that I just read has some controversy. There's a number of people who says it don't say that it doesn't belong in the Bible because some of the earliest versions don't don't include it, and it's been controversial for a long time. There is nothing in here that is not Jesus talking, so we're going to deal with it as if it belongs because it's in there. All right. Uh, so Jesus was in the temple. He's teaching, and note that he sat down, which was the style of the Jewish rabbis to teach. They would sit. Everybody else stood as they listened. That was what would happen in a Jewish synagogue. So the one sitting was the teacher, and, uh, and everybody else stood in respect and honor to, to listen to them. So, and it says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman unto him, taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto her, Master, this woman was taken in adultery, the very act. So we want to picture this happening of going on. Jesus is teaching the people. He's got their attention, and all of a sudden the scribes and the Pharisees come with this woman caught in adultery. And it says the very act of adultery. 
which means she was probably not clothed very well, being drugged into the temple to be thrown amongst all the crowd of people. Because if they caught her in the act, then we know that you don't, you don't uh, commit adultery fully clothed. <laughs> all right, so this is a picture of what's happened. She's either barely clothed or totally unclothed. We don't know, but they said they caught her in the act. problem with this we're going to get into in this next verse because it says now the law now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned what do you say now you may not fully understand this but they are misquoting the law of Moses when they say this right first off Moses doesn't say that they should be that she should be stoned she he says that those who commit adultery should be executed but the key on this, even beyond that part, there's one other very important thing that they're leaving out when they quote this, because this comes from Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22:22, that when you find somebody in the midst of adultery, both parties are to be killed. They caught this person in the very act of adultery, which means... Problem here. Now there's many, and I kind of agree with them, is that the man involved probably was one of them setting her up. And there's no proof of that, but I kind of agree with that because otherwise they would have brought the man. If the man had not been one of them, they would have, you know, not cared. So here are the Pharisees and the scribes who are supposed to know the law backwards and forwards, misquoting the law to Jesus, who is also the author of the law. So this is kind of a very interesting situation. Uh, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. What do you, you know, we're supposed to execute her. What do you say? Now, his first question should have been to them, if he was going to, to argue with them, is where's the man? You caught her in the act of adultery. Where's the man? Now, if they had brought the man with her, his answer would have been, could have only been one answer. Yes, they deserve to be stoned. Because that would have been the following of the law. You caught the person in adultery. Death was the, the, the punishment for adultery. Having brought just one party of the two, death is not, not the punishment because now you have an issue of did you, did you, was there really adultery involved? All right, so you understand this is where we're at with this. But they did this so that they could test Jesus. And that's what it says in verse 6. This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. What were they going to accuse him of? All right. If he said, let her go, then they would say, you don't honor Moses and the law. All right. Even though they haven't fulfilled the law, if he says, let her go, which he can because they did not bring both in, they can say, well, you don't honor, you don't honor Moses and the law. If he says, stone her, his whole ministry has been built on love and mercy and forgiveness. So they think we've got him. There is no way out of this, this uh, dilemma. All right? Now, literally and legally, he could have said, let her go, because he could have said, where's the man? All right? And he could very easily have gotten away with it, but he's not looking for a controversy at this point. He's going to do something totally different. But 
legally by the law, he could have said, let her go. You didn't bring the man, there is no case. You did not fulfill the law. But that would get him into fighting the minutiae of the law, and then he would sound just like one of them, bickering back and forth between, well, here's the fine points of the law you know, that they always, always fought over, and the people got tired of hearing that. So, if he, so that would be a third option that he had, but then he's going to sound just like one of them, and the people are going to go, oh, you know, we've been tricked. He's just, he's just another one of those lawyer, another one of those you know, scribes and Pharisees that just argue the law. So he's, as far as they're concerned, he's in a you know, catch-22. You know, he cannot get out of this. They think they've got him completely tied up with this decision. And it says, And Jesus stooped and down and wrote in the ground with his finger. Now, I and everybody else under the sun has always wondered, what did Jesus write? Now, <clears throat> who knows? It doesn't tell us. Whatever he wrote brought conviction to the people because he never says much of anything. He just writes. Now, there's all kinds of people that, you know, some people think that, you know, he might have been writing down their sins on the ground. I don't think that would, been, I don't think that would be what he was doing. That would sound too condemning to me and too embarrassing to them. But I think he probably did a little, a little more. He, I believe that he wrote the, the commandments down. And wrote and just was writing in the commandments. Probably included in that would have been Leviticus 20, 10, you know, when a man and a woman is found committing adultery, they're to be killed. You know, thou shalt not commit adultery, you shall not lie. You know, all the things that would have made these guys think twice. Can I prove that? No, nobody can prove it. It's one of the two schools of thought. I've heard people say he was writing, you know, uh, you know, Jeremiah, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, committed, a, you know, lied on this day and, and committed adultery on this day, but I don't believe I don't believe that was in his nature to have done that because he could have done that at any time. He knew he knew them. He he would have been able to do that, and we don't know what it is. Maybe he was just drawing pictures and letting the Holy Spirit work on them. We don't know what he was doing. All right, and it really doesn't matter. The end result is they get convicted. And he, after, he, after, after he did this, he did this for a while, and he looked up among them and said, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. Now, this is probably a dangerous thing to say to Pharisees. <laughs> All right? Because they, if they, they try to you know, say that they had not sinned, even though they knew they had sinned. But whatever he was writing, uh, writing, <laughs> writing on the ground or, or letting the Holy Spirit, get into their hearts, he knew that they were going to acknowledge that they had sin. And it would be hard for them when he says, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. Now, they're going to have to be hypocritical and they had to offer sacrifices. They know they had to go to Yom Kippur and they know that they have sin. They may not feel they have very much sin and they didn't. They didn't feel like they had very much sin, but they all knew that they had sin. And this is something we have to be very careful of as Christians sometimes, because I've, I've met Christians who feel like, well, I don't sin, or I don't have enough sin to really be worried about. Well, all it takes is one sin to send you to hell, so it all, be careful with that. I've met many people that will judge others because they're you know, more righteous than everybody else, and that was the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, we keep the law the, as best we can, and we do know we 
few mistakes and we'll offer our sacrifices for it, but you know, we're really good compared to most people. The only problem is God doesn't compare us to most people. He compares us to himself. And none of us compare to God. Because one sin means that we're not righteous enough to please him. And nobody's just committed one sin. Maybe, maybe if they're lucky, one sin an hour, but not, not one sin for their whole life. And so this is the problem. And Jesus looks up and he, and once he says this, he goes back to writing on the ground again. You know, just, just a quick statement. You know, whoever, whoever's without sin casts the first stone. And then he goes back to whatever he's writing, whatever he's drawing. We don't, we don't know. But this is also allowing the Holy Spirit time to work on their hearts. And if you've ever had the Holy Spirit working on your heart, you know how bad that can be. And I think the Holy Spirit was working hard on their hearts during this point, more, more than normal for most people. And you can picture all the people that Jesus was teaching watching this, this battle of wills going on. All right, what's going to happen? What is Jesus going to say? How is he going to deal with this woman sitting in front of him? You know, what's he going to do with these scribes and Pharisees? What are they going to do? These are the leaders. What are the leaders going to do? Are they going to let him get away with, you know, whatever it is that they're, you know, they're thinking? And this is happening in the temple. One day after tabernacle, Tabernacle's feast, which is an eight-day feast. So there's still probably lots of visitors and everything roaming around. They, they probably didn't all leave on the last day. Uh, and all of this is going on. I'm just setting up this, you know, this whole thing on it. And then he just said that he went down, and then verse 9 says, And they which heard it, being convicted of their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. The oldest to the youngest, which is kind of most people believe, the, you know, the older you are, the more you realize that you've sinned, and the more sin you have to think about. And as the oldest ones were leaving, the rest of them were kind of looking around like, Okay, that's the honored elder. If he can't throw the stone, I know I can't throw the stone, and each one of them would have started getting a little more. And as more and more of the elders start leaving, <laughs> more and more of them are going to realize uh, there's a problem here. And the people are leaving with embarrassment. I can't throw this first stone, and there's nobody here that can throw the first stone. And that's what they're really starting to understand. They're starting to really understand that, you know, there's none righteous, no, not one, as Isaiah tells us. And they know those verses. And they're realizing we were just called out. Which one of us is going to dare throw this first stone and say that we're perfect? And the only one who could cast the first stone was not going to. Because Jesus was the perfect one without sin. He could have cast the first stone. And he refused it because of his mercy and grace on her. And soon there was none of, the, none of the scribes and Pharisees, and it was just the woman. And Jesus stood up and looked at her and said, Woman, where are those that accuse you? Has no man condemned you? All right. So which one of them, which, which of your accusers is here to make that accusation? Who is going to say that you are a sinner deserving of, of punishment? And then her answer was, no one here. And Jesus' answer was very interesting because it's got two parts, and most people only look at the first part. 
He says, neither do I forgive you, uh, uh, condemn you. All right? That's his forgiveness part. And that's where most people want to stop. But he continues, go and sin no more. All right? This is Jesus' message to us when we get saved, when we get forgiven. He's not saying, I forgive you, go do what you want to do for the rest of your life. His answer is always going to be the same. Go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Stop your sinning. Repent. Do not go out and do the same thing. This is one of the problems that I have when people will, will go, you, know, you people who believe you can't lose your salvation, you just believe people can do whatever they want and, and go out and sin and sin and sin. No, that is not what we believe. We believe that, yes, you could if, that, if you're really saved. But if you're really saved, you're not going to want to. You're going to go and sin no more. When you get that forgiveness, you're going to say, wow, I am so happy that I got mercy. Then I love God so much that I don't want to go out and commit sin after sin after sin. And if your heart is that you can go out and sin and keep sinning without feeling the conviction or the problems with sinning, then you've got to then question, am I truly saved? Because I know in my life when I sin, I'm not going to say I don't sin, but when I sin, the Holy Spirit is right there saying, what do you think you're doing and why are you doing it? And I get miserable. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to stop what I'm doing. It doesn't necessarily mean anything other than God is really working on my heart so that I cannot say, I'm just going to keep doing this because it feels so good. Because it feels terrible. This is Jesus' word to her. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. What did he say to the man that, the, at Bethsaida when he, when he healed him? And he was carrying his, carrying his bed as he was told to. And they condemned him for it. And he goes, go and sin no more. Go out and do what you're supposed to do. Live by God's rules. And this is the important step in this. As Christians, God lives in our heart. And we will be convicted when we sin. If we aren't convicted when we sin, there's a problem in our life. And that problem is quite likely that we're not saved in the first place. Or we've really hardened our heart to the place where we're not listening to the Holy Spirit. And either way, we've got a problem in our life that needs to be corrected. And Jesus' answer was always, go and sin no more. And so we want to be able to look at this. And this is what Jesus said to this woman. Now again, there are people that say this doesn't belong here and it's but I'm not going to go there. I think it's a valid. Even if it doesn't belong here, it's still the area that Jesus would have done. The problem I have with this, you know, there is one reason I kind of think this wasn't in here. I can't, I can't picture them bringing a, a naked or half-naked woman into the temple. That just doesn't make much sense, but uh, it's kind of an in, irrelevant point. This first 10 verses is somewhat controversial to, to people, but there's nothing in here that it doesn't sound like Jesus. This is what Jesus would do. When we look at some of the, some of the older versions do not have it in it. So the question is, which one was right? The one that deleted it or the one that included it? So we don't know. I just bring it up because if you read an NIV or an ESV or any of the new translations, they will put this little note saying some of the earlier versions don't include this. King James has always included it. The Geneva Bible includes it. But they say some of the earliest manuscripts, some do, some don't. So they question whether it belongs here. 
But I will say, even if, even if it doesn't belong here, it is a valid story of what Jesus would have done or said during that period of time. And I can't comment on it. I'm not a Greek scholar. I can just tell you that there will be, you will come across some people say, well, you can't make any kind of lessons out of that because it may not belong. Well, but there, again, there's nothing in there that isn't Jesus. I mean, if this had happened, this would have been something Jesus would have said and done. So I'm not going not gonna to argue with them on it. I'll just say, fine, I'll go get some other place where it shows Jesus' mercy and, and go and sin no more. So there's, no, there's nothing there that is drastically out of line with anything else that we know about Jesus. All right, verse 12. Then spoke Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, you bear record of yourself. Your record is not true. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know where I come from and where I go. But you cannot tell where I came, where I come and you, or where I go. You judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, and I and the Father that sent, but I and the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bears witness of myself, and the Father that sent me bears witness of me. All right. So here we, here we have some interesting things going on. Jesus starts out with this saying, I am the light of the world. Now, here is not literally he is the glowing light that we have. He is the, the uh, light here is truth and knowledge of moral, moral and spiritual truth. All right. Uh, in, in the Bible, when you read, the, read light in both the Greek and the Hebrew, they both can mean the actual light that lights up a room or a place or be the light of truth and, and righteousness. Jesus is not saying, I am the very son of the son of the world at this point in time. All right? He is saying that I am the truth. I am the, the light that lights up, lights up the world. All right? um, this, was, this used to drive me crazy when I was a teenager because I'd read all these verses, especially in the Old Testament where they're, we praise the light and all this stuff. I'm going, okay, this sounds really weird. You know, it sounds like they're worshiping the sun, and it took me years to get down into the enough know Hebrew enough, you know, get into the Hebrew tools enough to realize that light is also doc, doc, doctrine and truth. And so we go, now it makes sense. They're not worshiping the sun. They're worshiping the, the truth and the doctrine of God. And this is what Jesus is saying. I am the truth. I am the doctrine of, of the world, the true light, not just the physical light lighting up the room. Uh, and he goes, he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, which is the opposite of, of the light. It's talking here about the idea of not walking in truth. All right. Uh, but shall have the light of life. So this is going to be something that's very interesting. Jesus is con contrasting truth to the lies. And we'll get more into that because he's going to talk more about, about this. And this is where we are as Christians. We are in Christ. We have the light of truth. And the world is full of darkness and lies. And this is one of the things when we studied the truth project that he brought, you know, brought out. And I loved it. God has absolute truth. 
Satan has multiple lies for every truth that God gives us. Multiple, not just one. You know, it's not one on one. He gives us, you know, 10, 20, 30, 100 lies to try to defeat. You go, oh, you don't like this lie? Oh, let me give you this lie. You don't like this lie? Let me give you this lie. And the sad thing is that he gives you enough lies that eventually there, you can find one that you kind of like. And it's very interesting when you talk to people and you talk to them about truth and they just don't want to accept truth, especially in our world where we've been taught over and over again for many years now, there is no absolute truth. And, and that is a real hard thing for me to be able to deal with. And I used to have fun when I was going to college because they go, well, you know, there's no absolute truth. And I go, are you absolutely sure? And they go, what do you mean? I go, you just made an absolute statement that there is no absolute truth, therefore your statement is wrong. You know, you said there is no absolute truth in an absolute format, which means that there is an absolute truth. And they, they would shake their heads like, you know, I don't understand. I go, you just absolutely said that there is no absolute truth. I go, you made an absolute truth statement that there is no absolute truth, and it you know, blew their minds because they had never thought it through. There must be absolute truth. Otherwise, and we know that, we live in a world that if we don't have absolute truth, we know that it can't survive. And yet Satan throws out all these lies at us all the time. Where are we headed to right now? You know, we got all kinds of craziness going on. You know, there is no gender, there is no right or wrong, you know, you can, whatever you believe is good, you know, we can go right down the list of all the craziness that's going on. And I've lost track to how many genders there are lately, you know. I, I made a quote one day and my, son, and my oldest son called me up and he goes, you're not even close to the right number of genders. I'm going, okay, well, you know what? One thing I do know is there's two genders. God said he created man and woman. Now, what the world wants to tell us beyond that? Last I knew it was something like 75 genders. Yeah, and I don't even know how they come up with this because I don't even want to contemplate that. Yeah, God says there's two. The world is trying to say, you know, you could be whatever you want to be. You know, I, I decide today that I'm a tree. You know, who's going to tell me I'm not a tree by, their, by the world standards? You know, well, today I think I'm a, a rock. You know, so it's like, no. <laughs> you are a human being created in the image of God, and you are either male or female. Now, that statement drives people nuts in today's world. We end up with the whole idea of where did things begin and we get this whole idea of evolution or all these other crazy things going on where God says, this is what I've done. And we've got to be so careful because if we deviate from God's standards of truth anywhere, we lead ourselves open to the attacks of Satan. And it is hard because we're bombarded by the lies of Satan all the time which is why it's so important for us to get into the Word of God and really get to know His Word and be able to sit and say, this is what God says. And I'm going to hold on to what God says no matter what the world says. And this is very important because the world wants to get rid of the idea that God created the heavens and the earth. Because if He didn't create things, He has no, re no right to give us laws. He has no right to, to tell us what is right and wrong. You know, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man and woman. He created marriage. He created family. He created all of these things that man is now trying to redefine into their image. 
which is no image, and do away with God's image. God's word is what is so important for us, which is why I love teaching God's word, because this is where we can grab onto our foundation. And without the foundation of his word, we're in quicksand. You know, and it's amazing the things that people believe that change from day to day and month to month and year to year and, you know, generation to generation. You know, you're going, how, you know, where can you, but, but each generation changes what they believe. Sometimes good, sometimes better, you know, or sometimes worse. It doesn't, it, it's fluid because they're not standing on the foundation of God. And this is why it's so important to stand on the foundation because without a good foundation, we will be shaken at all times. And this is why it's important to know truth. And Jesus was saying, I am that life. I am the truth. I am the doctrine that you're of the world. And he goes, if you're not believing me, you're walking in darkness. What is he just telling the, the scribes and the Pharisees at this point in time? If you're not believing me, you're not believing correctly. These are the guys that are telling everybody, we know God's word. And this guy over here is telling us that he knows it better than us. And unfortunately, he did. And he proved it to him over and over again, which is why they didn't like talking to him all that much. Because every time they set a trap for him and thought that they knew the word of God better, he would actually come out of it showing them how foolish they were and how wise he was without ever coming out and saying, you know, you're a bunch of dummies. Now, he wasn't very nice to him. He said, you're whitewashed sepulchers and, you know, vipers and all that stuff. But he never came out and said, well, you're so dumb, you don't understand the word of God. You know, he would say something like, have you not read? Have you not considered? And that's why I think in the picture of the woman caught in adultery that he was probably just writing out scripture in front of them. Huh? I found you. I'm like on the sand. Like I'm writing. Like, yeah, in the sand. In the sand. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah, just writing in the sand. You know, here's yeah, the okay. here, here's the here's the here's the law. Here's the law. Oh, you think this is what you want to go? Here's the rest of the law. You know, you you wanted to you you caught this woman where you know here's the law. You know, the man and the woman shall be, you know, killed. So I think that's what he was doing. That's just my opinion. It's not really worth a whole lot. You know, I've heard somebody said, oh, he was drawing his pictures and letting the Holy Spirit work. And I can buy that too. But Jesus constantly was going, have you not read? Well, here's the rest of what, you were, what you've been quoting. All right. But he never really attacked them to make them look foolish in front of the people. Why? Because he had respect for their position. You, and that's what we're told. We're, we're to respect authority. Whether they're right or wrong does not matter. Now, as the military would tell us, you're to respect the uniform even if you don't like the person that's wearing the uniform. If that person has epaulets on their shoulder or stripes on their, you know, epaulets on their shoulder or stripes on their upper arm, you respect that position whether you like them or not. David honored King Saul when Saul had no right to be honored because of the way he was treating David and had rejected God and didn't obey God. And yet, because he was king, David honored that position. Jesus did the same thing. Yes, he got kind of harsh with them every once in a while, but he never broke and attacked their position as leaders of the people. And this is very important for us. You know, when we deal with people, 
are we dealing with them with a respect for their, uh, their, their position and their authority? Whether they're doing it right or not is, does, does not matter. We see it in the disciples when they're being persecuted. They never went up to him and said, hey, we're, we're obeying God, so you don't have the right to you know, punish us and to execute us and throw us in prison and beat us. No. What did they say? We thank God that we've been found worthy to suffer for Christ. We're, on, we're obeying God. You have the power. You can do what you want with that power. Now, they knew on, that God would judge them for their, for their misabuse, probably their, after their death, but they knew that, they would be, that God would deal with them. And that was God's doing to deal with them. We need to keep that understanding, especially in our country and our world where, the, where our government and our and officials are getting more and more corrupt with each, gener, you know, with each group that goes into it. And we need to still honor the position and be very careful about how we deal with them and what we say about them. Now, and now I understand most of, them are, most of them are very corrupt in today's world. Most of them don't deserve to be where they're at. Most of them don't deserve the honor, but that's still irrelevant because they are in position, and God tells us over and over again that nobody is in a position of authority without him putting them there. Nebuchadnezzar comes, comes along and brutally takes the Jewish people out of their country. And he wasn't nice about it. And that's why God said, because of your actions, you, are, you, you, you and your family, your, your family will be judged in the second generation. And then they were taken because, he said, because of what they had done to the Jews. God brings discipline upon the leaders, but he does it in his time. Our job is to honor their, honor their position. You know, what did Paul say when he was coming back after a long trip and, you know, and he'd been stood in front of the temple and, the, and he was hit and he started making an accusation? He goes, is that how you speak to the high priest? And what did he say? I didn't know that he was a high priest. I'm sorry. You know, even though the high priest was violating the laws that, of their court system, Paul said, I didn't know who it was. I'm sorry. You know. He could have very easily said, well, you're the one breaking the laws. You know, you have no right to break the laws, but that's not how he approached it because he said he's gonna, there's a position that needs to be honored. And I'm going to tell you it's hard sometimes to honor somebody who does not deserve honor. I've got a couple of people where I work that, you know, they're in a position, you know, that's fairly high up, and I'm going, these guys are total idiots, but I have to honor that position you know, and be careful what I say or what I, what I do. Because, you know, they're not asking me to do anything sinful. They're just, they are just stupid. <laughs> and they're not good managers. But that's not my call. You know, the fact that I've trained managers all my life and know, know what a good manager is is irrelevant because they are in that position of authority. And I understand that it can be very hard sometimes. And... This is what's going on here. Jesus is still honoring these guys. Even though he's going after them, in one sense, he's being very careful. He's not saying things that would have totally stripped them of respect amongst the people. He is going after what they, what they teach and how, they, how they're behaving, but he's not demeaning them. And that's a very important step on this as he's going forward on this. And the Pharisee said unto him, You bear record of yourself. Your record is not true. 
Now this is kind of an interesting statement uh, that they're making because they're saying that you cannot bear record of yourself and there is no verse that I know of that says you can't bear record of yourself. But their attitude was if you're really a humble person, you wouldn't be trying to build yourself up and bear, bear your record up. So therefore, you're not humble, you're a proud person. This is the accusation they're making on him. All right. Um, and so they would always work it out that one of their friends would be one that bears record for them so, so they could look good amongst each other. Jesus answered and said, though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. All right. I am important enough that even if I bear my own record, I am true. I am not making it up. I'm not making, making up my own stories. This is one of the hardest things for somebody to do is to talk well of themselves without trying to appear to be proud. Uh, one of the hardest things to do is on an employee interview. You're supposed to make yourself look like the greatest thing since sliced bread without sounding, without sounding like you're a proud, conceited person. All right. Uh, this is what they're talking about. You're bearing your own record. You're, you know, you're, you're just being a proud person. And Jesus said, even if I am, and, he's, and note that he says, though I bear a record of myself, yet my record is true. You know, I am very, and I am truthful, for I know where I come from and where I go, but you cannot tell where I come or where I, where I go. This goes back to the previous chapter where he's telling them that they don't know who he is, and, and he's telling them I'm God and you don't even know who I am. Uh, and th this is what he's saying over and over again. I know who I am, I know where I'm from, and I know where I'm going. Okay. I came from the Father. I came to live a perfect life on this world to die so that I could pay the price for the sins, and I know where I'm going. Where is he going? First to the cross, then he's going to be resurrected, then he's going back to the Father. And he goes, but you don't know where I came from, and you don't know where I'm going. Why? Because they weren't spiritually attuned enough to know Jesus, they were not listening to what he said. Nicodemus had listened to what he said, but he wasn't brave enough to stand out in the crowd. Nicodemus is quite an interesting character because he seems to believe in Jesus all these time, but he's not willing to get kicked out of the, kicked out of the group. All right? He's willing to say a little bit here and there, like the last time he goes, it's not, it's not for us to judge a man before we've heard him in court, you know, and, and then they kind of shut him down with their speech and he doesn't respond back. So he's actually representing the very cowardice that most Christians have. That when we're challenged, we oftentimes back off from the truth in a dark world. And this is a picture of Nicodemus. And here he's telling them, you, know, you guys are so blind, you can't even, you don't know who I am or you don't know where I'm going. You don't know the word of God. You don't know anything about what it is. And he says, you don't, know, you don't know what's going on. And this is the great thing. Once we become Christians, and I've heard this so many times from people, before I got saved, I, the Bible didn't mean anything to me, and then all of a sudden I started reading it, and I started understanding. Maybe not every single word, but I, it now made sense. Why? Because you know the one that wrote it. And he is in there. And so those of us who know him would have looked at him and go, well, we know where you say you're coming from and, and we know where, you were, where you're going. And you said you came from the Father and that you're returning to the Father. You've said it over and over again. 
Here the Pharisees are being told, you don't even know where I'm coming from because you're not accepting what I say. And you don't know where I'm going because you're not believing what I say either. Uh, you know, so this is, this is what he's saying. He goes, I know, what, I know who I am. And it's really interesting when you meet somebody who's very confident in who they are without being arrogant. They're just confident. They know what they know. They, they're, they're good at what they do. They know what they don't know. All right. In Jesus' case, there was nothing he didn't know. But, you know, it's kind of refreshing when you get to know. But those same people can irritate other people that think they know about what you know. And so these Pharisees are irritated because Jesus is saying, there's things you don't know. And he's talking about spiritual things. And the scribes and Pharisees are supposed to be the know-it-alls in the spiritual world. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you spiritual things and you don't even understand it. You don't know, you have not heard me when I say I've come from the Father. You have not heard me when I say I'm returning to the Father and you don't believe it. And really challenging them, you know, have you not read your scriptures? Don't you understand anything that's been going on? And in this case, they don't. And he says, you judge after the flesh, I judge no man. This whole idea of judging, deeming, rule. He goes, you're, ruling, you're making your decisions by what you think you see according to the flesh. And then he says something very interesting. I judge no man. Jesus says in another place, I did not come to judge. And on his first coming, he did not come to judge people. He came to be the loving son and die as the lamb on the cross. And he gave mercy and forgiveness. He could have so easily, he was God. He goes, you guys, don't, you guys are telling lies, and so anybody, any liar in this midst dropped dead. He wouldn't have had many people left around him. But that wasn't what he'd come for. He came to show love and compassion to people. And this is one of the things we need to always remember as Christians. We are not called to judge the world. We are called to show God's love to the world and his care for the world. Now, that doesn't mean we don't say that certain things are sin and everything. We can call out sin as sin, but we're not judging the individual committing that sin. And this is something very important for us as Christians. You know, Christians will constantly say the statement that I've, that I've said many times. We hate the sin and love the sinner. And that's hard to split the part when we're, when we're engraved into the world's way of thinking. The world does not separate the sin and the sinner. You know, if you are somebody who steals, you are a thief. You're not just an individual who is committing the sin of, of stealing, you are a thief. You know, if you tell lies, you are not somebody that is committing the, the sin of lying, you are a liar. They cannot separate the truth, which is why when we get into some of the bigger ones, homosexuality and adultery, you know, they don't separate the two, you are what you do. Whereas we as Christians realize there's a soul in there that God loves and cares about that is committing sins. And the two are separate. Which is why when you become a Christian, we can become a new creation totally built into God's love and care and our sins can be taken away 
because our sins are not who we are. And it's very important for us to understand that as, as Christians because we get bombarded with the idea that, you know, and I hear it all the time, well, people can't change. You know, I work at a prison and the whole prison system is supposed to be built on rehabilitation to change people from bad, and bad, bad people into good citizens. Now, the whole system doesn't work. That's beside the point. But they will tell you that you can't change people. And it's, it is true, the world cannot change people. When they look at recidivism rates, the only ones that really truly get changed are those that become Christians and start following God and have a change of heart, not learn to discipline themselves into being good. Because when you're disciplined in being good, eventually you're going to fall because the flesh still wants to sin. And no matter how good I am at disciplining myself, at some point I'm going to give in to the flesh because the flesh is always there wanting to sin. Now, even as a Christian, I'm going to give in to the flesh if I'm not careful. If I'm not letting God crucify my flesh, because that's what he tells us, for I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. If I'm not letting Christ crucify my flesh on a daily, hourly, minute by minute basis, I will give in to the flesh. But because I, as a Christian, theoretically, we can live a perfect life if we would just stay crucified and focused on God. We don't do it very well. <laughs> I haven't met a Christian yet that is perfect. And, but some are better than others because they've let Christ crucify them more and more. And there are certain areas in our life, the longer we walk with God, that are better crucified and, and killed off in our, in our life, that we, there are no temptations in that area and, you know, because the flesh is killed off. But there's still plenty of areas where we have problems with. And this is something that we need to be very careful of. You know, and Jesus is telling them, I don't, judge after, I don't judge anybody. Now, there will be a time when he is going to be judge again. All right? Uh, in the end days, he will be the judge that will convict. But even then, when, he, when the people stand before the white throne judgment, who are they standing before? They're standing before the Father and being judged. And why are they being judged? They're not being even judged for their sin. They're being judged because they are not totally 100% righteous. They're going before God in their own righteousness, which Isaiah tells us is filthy rags. So at the white throne judgment, and I can picture this so clearly in my head, because I've heard it so many times, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven. And I can just picture the people standing at the white throne judgment, going, good God, I'm going to show you how righteous I am. And then they look down. And they're clothed in rags. And they all of a sudden they realize that these aren't their sins they're clothed in. These are all the good things that they did on earth. And realize that they're standing before the ultimate judge of the world in rags. Thinking that they had great garments on. And God's going to say, depart from me. You know, you know, you don't, you don't even know what it is. You're not dressed right. We stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, clothed in his righteousness, and say, oh, come on in. You're welcome. Now let's go ahead and see, do your works hold up? As he takes our works that we have allowed him to do in our life and puts them in the fire and says, are these your works or my works? My works burn up. 
because my good righteousness isn't going to do anything, but the things I let him do through me, I'll get rewarded for. It's a wonderful plan that God has. He has the plan that all the world wants. The world always wants somebody else to do the work and they get the reward. And Jesus is going to say, okay, here's all the works that I did and here's your reward. You get to keep the rewards for what I did in your life that you let me do in your life. And the stuff you did, oh, that's just wood, hay, and stubble. It's gone. It burns up. It, you know, it your, your, your works are burnt up. But what I worked in you, you get to keep those as your reward. You know, I think it's wonderful. Satan has made a lie out of what God says is true. And he's going to reward us for working through us. And we get to go, oh, wow. You know, this is what I get to keep. And I didn't do anything for it. You know, all that stuff I did is burnt up. And I'm not saying it's worthless. You know, I mean, wood, wood is pretty substantial. You know, we used to make everything out of wood. You know, and you can do a lot of good things with wood. But it does wear out over a period of time, so we cannot take that into heaven because it is not substantial. But what he does through us is what we're going to be rewarded for. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And Jesus says, I don't judge any man. And then he goes, and yet, if I judge, my judgment is true. He goes, all right, I'm not judging anybody, but if I did judge, my judgments would be true. Why? Because he knows everything. When we try to judge somebody, we only know what we see. What we, or even what we think we see. You know, maybe not even what we, what, we may not be interpreting what we see correctly. But we also don't know all the parts to the story. You know, why was this done? How did this happen? Did this person get set up? You know, all the stuff that goes into a true judgment. And Jesus says, if I was to judge, mine would be true because I know all things. But he says, I'm not judging anybody. But if I did, it would be true. For I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. So again, he's reading to them, I come from the Father. The Father has sent me. Theoretically, he's saying we are one. All right, not what they want to hear. All right, they don't want to hear this whole thing. And it says, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is, is true. Now this is according to the scriptures in the Messianic scriptures, uh, the, excuse me, the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 7, 17, 6, that if you're going to convict somebody, there has to be at least two witnesses that say the same thing. All right? They say anything different, then you can't convict them. All right? And so he says, the, Bible, you know, the scriptures say that you have to have two witnesses. And he says, I am the one that bears witness of myself. All right, so he says, I'm the first, I'm the first witness. And he says, and the Father that sent me bears witness of me. Because, you know, I and the Father agree. Now, I don't know how they're going to, you know, question the Father, but Jesus' statement is, I'm saying this, the Father is agreeing with me. Because he and I are one. And so all of this is coming down to, to Jesus really challenging them to say, do you truly understand what's going on? And they don't. They do not have an intimate relationship with God 
and have never even thought about having an intimate relationship with God. God to them, as, or to Jews as a whole, is just an all-powerful being who has given you a whole bunch of rules that if you don't obey him, he's going to smack you. They don't have an intimate God that loves them. Even though the scriptures is full of, their, of his love being shown to them, it never became a reality into their hearts that God truly loved them. Now a handful did. Don't get me wrong. There were those who understood that there was a love for God, that God loved them. Virtually every religion out there, if there's a deity involved in that religion, has that same attitude that there's a God out there that puts a bunch of rules in there, but God does not love you. You have to give enough obedience to that God to be accepted. That is the way the, the uh, Mormons believe. It's the way the uh, uh, Islam faith believes, Krishna faith believes. They all have this idea that there's a God that you have to please by doing enough good or more good than bad, and who knows how much good you have to do to, to overweigh the bad. But you've got, you can, that, that God will never love you. They will just accept you. This is the difference in Christianity. In Christianity, we have a God that loves us, who died for us so that we could be brought into a relationship with him. And I love it when people go, well, you can never know whether you're good enough to go to heaven. The answer to that is, yes, you can. Or they go, what do you mean? I go, you're not. You will never be good enough to go to heaven on your own. That is why Jesus came to this world to die on the cross so that we could be receiving his righteousness and be accepted into going to heaven. It's a real simple, simple truth. And any other thing that says it's anything other than Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is wrong. Because if there's anything else that could get us saved, Jesus wasted his time coming to this world to die for our sins. And we need to really grab hold of that as Christians. I am only able to be in God's presence because of what Jesus did for me. And because of the love of God toward me, I can learn to love him. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, this love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth God, loveth, knoweth God, and he that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. And then another one in 1 John says that we love him because he first loved us. And that's where we learn love. Without knowing God, we cannot truly love somebody. Because the world's idea of love is, I get something out of the deal. Plain and simple. Now, there's always, if I don't get something, then I don't love you, or you don't love me, and if you don't love me, I'm not going to love you. And that's not God's love. God's love is unconditional love. He loves humanity no matter what they do. He loves, he will love them even as he's sending them to the lake of fire that they want, that they decided they wanted by rejecting his love. And he will still love them even though he cannot violate his righteousness and his judgment by allowing them to stay in his presence. He will still love them giving them what they wanted which was not being around him. And that will break his heart because of his love. For them. When we learn unconditional love, 
it'll start showing to other people. God, Jesus said, you will know they are my disciples by their love one for another. And that is what's so important is that we show love not just to other Christians, but to the world. As we reach out to those that are unlovable, as we reach out to those that don't deserve anything, we're showing God's love to them. And that touches people's hearts. You know, I have had people, even in this church, where we help them and help them and help them, and then going, when are you going to ask for something? We're not. We do have a desire that you learn, you know, get to know Jesus, but we're not, we're not asking for you to pay back. We're not asking you to do anything other than accept the love of God and know that God loves you. And what we can do is what little bits we can do to show God's love are what we're going, what we're going to do. And that's what we do as people, as Christians, show others the love of God. And I've said it over and over in this, in this church, anybody is welcome in this church. Now, I know God's going to convict them because when I say that something's a sin, they're going to go, well, you're judging me, and I, oh, I just said that God calls it a sin. But they're still welcome. And we've had several homosexual couples come and stay for a couple months until they find out that we believe that homosexuality is a sin, and then they disappear. We never say, we, I've never called them out for their sin. I've never even made an a, a, a issue of it. My goal is to get them to come to Christ, and then Christ can make the issue out of their sin. And this is so important because too many Christians want to see people get to be good before they can be saved. I don't want to see anybody get good. I want to see them get saved and then let God change who they are. Because if they get good on their own, then they're going to think they don't need Jesus. And the hardest people to get saved are the people who think they're good. All right? That was Jesus' big, biggest problem, those scribes and Pharisees who thought they were good people. They would not recognize they were sinners in need of a Savior. And I have met people that have gone to church all their life that have never admitted that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. Even sitting in good churches where they hear the gospel message. They just don't recognize that I need a Savior. And many of them have gone to church all their life. And not, not some church that doesn't teach the gospel. I've seen them sitting in good Bible-preaching churches that preach the gospel and not accept that they're a sinner. Everybody else is a sinner, but not me. You know, uh, you know even though they'll quote the verse, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, and they go, well, everybody's a sinner. That, that all is everybody but me. <laughs> I don't know how they get there. But that is a problem. When you don't recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, then you won't turn to the Savior. And this is so important that we show the love of God to those who need His love, which is everybody, and then let them respond to God's love and accept that sacrifice that He made for them. And this is where Jesus is always having trouble with the scribes and Pharisees because most of them would not recognize they needed a Savior. They're going, well, we're better than everybody else. All right? Nicodemus is recognizing this. Joseph of Arimathea is going to recognize this. Paul, you know, or Saul, Saul of Tarsus recognizes it on the road of Jer 
to Damascus. Before that, he did not recognize that he was a sinner in need of a savior. So over and over again, we see the need coming in. And a lot of it is just really looking at the savior and recognizing, wow, I have problems. And the one thing I'm learning, the more I walk with God, the more I recognize that I'm a sinner. Now, because he shows a, shines a light deeper and deeper into my heart to show that my heart is deceptively wicked and above all things, who can know it? And he shines that light a little deeper. And every time, every time I think I've got everything taken care of, he says, okay, here's, a, here's another area of your life we're going to deal with. And here's another area of your life. You know, and he does that to keep us humble so that we don't get proud and arrogant. And he just shines the light deeper and deeper and says, okay, here's, you know, here's this area, here's this area. You know, Paul said at the end of his life, I'm the, I'm, I'm the chiefest of sinners. And virtually every commentary I says, look at says, well, that was what, that's what he said about who he was. No, he was saying, I am. He really understood that he was a sinner. By the end of his life, he still realized that there were things in his life that he still hadn't gotten rid of. And I'm realizing that more and more. The older I get and the longer I walk with God, the more I realize that, you know what, I'm a pretty bad sinner. You know, not outwardly, not, not terrible as far as that, but there's a lot of stuff in my heart that needs to be gotten rid of because of who I am, a sinner. And we need to understand, and it doesn't, it's not to paralyze us. It's to put us under the mercy of God and saying, God, without you, I'd be in trouble. And that is the most important thing. With him... Yes, we're righteous. We're walking, walking in righteousness and holiness if, we, if we're doing what we're supposed to. But our heart, given an opportunity, would sin in a heartbeat. You know, or even less than a heartbeat, a blink of an eye. You know, it, would, it wants to sin. It desires to sin. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into this idea that, you know, I, I, I am so perfect I can get walking on my own. You know, whenever we get there, we're going to find ourselves in some very bad situations because the, the flesh will always make the wrong decisions. Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we go. Lord, help us to recognize who we are and that we are in you as your, as your children. Help to crucify our flesh. Help us to learn to love others in a greater and greater way and guide and lead us in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.